what it allows them to do is dream. And if you can just start dreams, regardless of what it is, giving yourself the ability to dream is super important. Hey, it's your friend Jason Mraz, the official spokesperson of the Good Tidings Foundation. And what an honor it is. On behalf of Good Tidings Foundation, we welcome you to the fourth season of the Good Tidings podcast that highlights the goodness in people. This episode is proudly sponsored by the San Francisco Giants. You can go to sfgiants.com for updates on the Giants and information on game tickets, special events, and promotions for the 2023 season. And now, enjoy the podcast. So for this month's podcast, our guest is one of the most popular San Francisco Giants of all time and a true humanitarian. So Jeremy Affelt, welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for uh, having me on. So before we get into the essence of this podcast, I do want to dive into your baseball career a little bit. My first question was, you know, prior to 2009, you had spent some time with three different clubs. What was it about the Giants that said, hey, I want to come to this ball club? Oh, man, you know, to be honest with you, the first time they asked me was in 2007 or 2008. I was a free agent after Colorado and they, Brian Sabian and I, we, we've talked about it a few times, but he insulted me so much with the offer. I said, never call me ever again. <laughs> and I got really upset with him. I said, I'll never, never do a deal with you. And you know what? You could see Brian's a GM because they called the very next year. And he was like, all right, are you simmered down now? I'm like, no, not until you offer me a legitimate. Offer. And it was funny because when he talked to my agent, he said, is he going to hold out? Because I held out till almost spring training the year before. And he said, well, you come to him with the right offer. He's not going to hold out. And Brian laughed and said, I figured he's like, here's the deal. There's no way that this is a bad offer. I'm going to give you everything I got. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I want him here. And he did. He came with, I didn't even negotiate. It took us 15 minutes. But the reason why I wanted to come to the Giants is several things. West Coast team. I lived in Spokane, Washington at the time. And I wanted to be closer to home. I want to be able to just kiss. I had to get home to my actual home, home, off-season home in Washington. I want to be able to get there quicker. I like the West Coast. My family is closer to my overall family. My parents could come watch. But San Francisco was a team for me that was in a building stage that I saw good things happening. And I had enjoyed that ballpark. I'd been there a few times, obviously playing with Colorado. It's a pitcher-friendly ballpark, to be honest with you. But I did not know the impact that that team was going to make on me, not just necessarily from the aspect of winning, but also from the aspect of my what I wanted to be a part of when it came to humanitarian efforts, giving back to the community. I did not really know that they were that much of a community team as they were. And so it ended up being one of the best fits that could possibly happen for me. Now, growing up, who were your baseball idols? Oh, man. Well, I lived in Merced, California. Well, from my fifth grade to my eighth grade year, and then obviously my high school, I was in Washington. But when I was in the Valley there, there's no doubt. Some of my idols were Mark McGuire, and they were Carney Land, Will Clark. I loved watching them play. Dravecki watched the game where he snapped his elbow. Like, I, I saw that game. The World Series was awesome. But my favorite pitcher to watch was Dave Stewart. I love that guy. I love watching him pitch. 
I've seen my actually the crazy thing is I love watching him as a kid's pitch so much. I have seen him. I had seen him when he was a GM for the Diamondbacks and he was in the Ritz Carlton hanging with some of the old school guys. And I literally didn't even know if I didn't even die. I said one word to him. So I was like, Hey, he's like, Hey, I'm like, I don't know what to say. And I don't fanboy on anybody. I've met some of the most famous baseball. Pl- I mean, some of my heroes, I never fanboyed. I was like, Randy Johnson was my throwing partner in San Francisco. He was a hero of mine when I was watching him in Seattle. Ken Griffey Jr. was my teammate in Cincinnati. But with him, I was, I think it was just because it was my very youngest adolescent, my seventh and eighth grade years. He was such an impact type guy for me to watch that when I saw him, I just didn't know, you know, what to say necessarily. And so I loved watching him there. Those are some of my heroes. Yeah. Really, one of the keys to the three championships for the Giants was what was dubbed the core four. And as a baseball guy myself, I can look back now. You were guys were really at the cutting starting edge of the importance of a bullpen to a championship team with you, Javi Lopez, Sergio Romo, Santiago Casilla. Looking back now, was that a plan, you think, in place to have this core four, or it just kind of worked out that way and, and it meandered its way into three championships? I think it was a plan. I think Sabian, you know, he came from the Yankees. I think he understood they had a back into the bullpen over there in the mid 90s. That was pretty phenomenal. I think that he was trying to build it. And I know when he talked to me in 08 coming over, he said, look, I got Bochi needs a back end. And he cannot handle these guys walking guys. I need guys that can throw strikes. And I wasn't necessarily known as a strike thrower, but my last couple of years leading up to that, I'd thrown a lot of strikes and I threw a lot of innings and I had made it through. So I think he wanted some veteran guys where he's like, look, I've got some young guys. I got a kid named Romo that's coming up. He's got a great slider. He told me a little bit about him, but I've also got a closer in Brian Wilson. And he said, listen, the guy's got tremendous upside. He's a little crazy, but he's got tremendous upside, but I need some guys to build around him to bring them in and to get them to get into this game situations. So he said, I want to bring you in. I've got one other righty. And it was Bob Howry that he brought in. And he goes, I need you guys to come in, throw a lot of strikes, get a lot of big outs and just bridge it and teach these kids how to be a bullpen. And what he did from there is then I got hurt in 2010. Then he went out and got Javi to replace me. But then when I got healthy, he had Javi and I both. So he had two good left-handers in the pen. And he had Wilson. And Sergio had come along real quick and very, very well and was competing at a very high level. So you had those four. And then when Wilson, we went and got Casilla just to bring into the bullpen as another righty to pick up for a, a Bob Howery situation leaving. And then all of a sudden now we've got five of us, but then Wilson gets hurt. And now it was Casilla, Romo, myself and Javi, and it kind of just rolled. But I think what he was trying to do is I've got three or four big time starters. If I've got a back into the bullpen, I don't have to put up seven runs. I need to put up two or three. And he knew that that's the team that we had. And so we pitched accordingly, but he needed guys that understood how to pitch in high pressure situations and can handle three to two ball games. It's really easy to pitch for some guys when it's five to one, six to three, six to two, three to two, two to one, one to zero. It's a little different. And frankly, I don't pitch well in big blowout games. So I told anytime Bochi was like, you want to get some work in? We're up 10, nothing. I would say no. 
Absolutely not. I'm going to give up a six spot. Like I hated it because I couldn't focus. I was so used to being in these intense, close back against the wall type situations that if I didn't have my back against the wall and there was nothing to worry about, like I, I kind of, for whatever reason, my makeup and it was something that bothered me my whole career. My makeup just didn't do real well. Cause I didn't really have that competitive edge. So I, I appreciated the close ball games. Yeah. Yeah. And how good was it to pitch for Bochi and pitch to Buster? Well, I mean, Buster was such a calming guy back there and he knew how to call a game for the limited time. And most people, maybe most people know it. Most people probably just don't remember it. He didn't have a lot of catching experience. I mean, he was a third baseman shortstop coming in out of college. I mean, he just had like a year of catching. I don't even think he had a full year catching. So for him to, to come in in the minor leagues, switch to a catcher role, and then come to the big leagues and handle the staff like he handled, he just showed a lot of trust with us early. Young catchers and I never really got along because I didn't trust him. You've never been in the league. You don't have any idea. Like, I don't know if I can trust what you're calling here. He earned our trust right away. And he called such a good game. It was so comforting. I never shook. And sometimes I would, and he would shake me off. And then him and I would maybe get into it a few times just because I'm like, look, man, I want to throw a curveball every once in a while. And he's like, well, he can't hit your sinker. So why are we throwing a curveball? Plus, I got to block your curveball. And now I'm taking him off the body. I'm getting body shots like a hockey goalie. So I'd rather take the risk on your sinker, you know? So, but he was so good. You trusted him. Those are some of those no hitters in perfect games. I don't think Kane, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Kane didn't shake him. I mean, he just pitched. I mean, that's pretty good. So when you have that situation, you can trust him and you can trust him in the biggest situations. And with Bochi, he earned my trust a little bit in the playoffs, but I always knew he was a good manager, but I just really had a lot more respect for him, especially after the Phillies series in 2010 of just basically saying, I'll put you in the role that's going to give not only our team the most success, but you, I'm never going to leave you out there to die. And I'm never going to put you in a situation that I don't think is going to be the best outcome for our team. And that means that's the best outcome for you. So I'm not going to mismatch you if I can help it. And there'll be times maybe why I will, or I'm stuck and I'm going to tell you to pitch around him. And I'm going to say, well, we got a couple runs to give up. So if he gets him, he gets him, but he's going to get the next guy out. So let him pitch. And for me, I appreciated that. And I learned so much from Bochi, even on my public speaking. Now I do a lot of public speaking on leadership and I use a lot of the stories from him in that leadership situation. So I'm, I'm very appreciative of him. Yeah. And being a relief pitcher, you have to have a short memory. Was that hard for you to develop? You know, it was, I would say that for me, I would came up as a starter I'm an overanalyzing type guy. I'm overly analytical on stuff. A lot of times I want to fix stuff right away, but I think that helped me too, because it's not necessarily that I had a short memory. It's the fact that if I didn't have a good outing or I felt off, I'd be the first one in the ballpark and I'd be doing extra work out there the next day. And I wanted to get into the game to work on what I've been working on. Okay. I've worked on it. I fixed it. Get me in the game. I want to pitch. I don't want to sit and think about it too long. So getting back in there. And then a lot of times you had a good outing or you, you and then you just moved on. You, you're good. I'm, I'm, I'm fixed. Or, or there are times where, man, I was, I just needed to be able to get out of it. Like, 
Hey, I had a bad outing or I had a bad one or two outings. And now my third outing, I got bases loaded one out again. And I'm like, Oh dear, this could go bad. And then I get a double play ball out of it. Okay. Whew, skies are the, the sun's shining. The clouds broke. Right. And so you need that, but bullpen guys need a little bit of crazy in them and a little bit of like what they have with what, what they had to realize is ERA for a bullpen guy isn't necessarily what the team thinks about. They look about, Hey, did he do nine out of 10 outings, eight out of 10 outings? And those one or two, he gave up a five spot. He's got a four because he gave up a, a six or a five spot with no outs, but the rest of them, he threw eight shutout. That's a little different. And to me, I had to understand that because I went through arbitration where they use numbers so much against me. Eventually I just had to get over it and be like, did I do my job or didn't I do my job? What did it look like? All those different things. And if I did my job, I did my job. And, and that relaxed me a little bit. And that helped me mentor some of the other bullpen guys of saying, hey, look, you just need to do your job eight or nine out of 10 times. Other than that, no one cares. So let's just focus on that. We're going to win some ball games, And that's kind of what our bullpen did. I think we did our job pretty much eight or nine out of 10 times. And it was very rewarding. Yeah, and obviously your attention was heightened more so on the importance of the game because I looked up your playoff stats. They are historical. So obviously you loved those games even more than the regular season. Yeah, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, what'd you do different? And I was like, I didn't do anything different. It was 60 feet, six inches. I threw the same catcher, I had the same defense. I think what I did different, what set me maybe apart in those games was the fact that I didn't do anything different. And when the pressure's up in the playoffs and it's up, there is no doubt. I mean, you see some really good pitchers not do well in the playoffs, really good hitters not do well in the playoffs. It's just mental. And so for me, all the mental training that I had done in Colorado with a guy named David Cook, a very, very brilliant sports psychologist, wrote basically the, the Seven Days in Utopia. They, they made a movie on it. He was the sports psychologist for the San Antonio Spurs in the 90s when they had their run. He's one of the top PGA sports therapists, psychologists. And I got to meet. I read his book and then my agent had me meet with him and he changed my career. And I think for me, what I learned from him was more effective in the playoffs than any other time because I knew that hitters and pitchers got so mental in the playoffs and the pressure was so high, it affected them. And it didn't affect me as much because I stayed with my routine. I stayed with my mental thought process, my mental approach. I've watched the games like game seven, my GM of the brewery here, he'll, he'll think it's funny. He'll start playing it. Just, he just puts it on YouTube and I'll shake my head, but I, I stop and watch it. I get nervous. And I know what happens because I'm like, I couldn't see real well. I had a water bubble on the middle of my eyeball. So I was seeing double, like I couldn't see. And we just didn't want to tell Bochi because we didn't want him to have a heart attack. So, and I was like, how did I get through that? And it was just simply because I never let myself get outside the reality of my mental thought process. So I didn't allow all that stuff to come in because of how focused I was at doing my job like I did every single day and the pressure allowed other people to probably give me some of those numbers because I didn't change. I didn't make good. Sometimes I, didn't, I threw the ball right down the middle. Sometimes I was tired. It's just the hitter got too amped up and tried to do too much and I beat him, you know? So I used it to my yeah. advantage. Yeah. Great. So we first met back in 2013 at the dedication ceremony of our 
Jeremy Affelt Field in Modesto in partnership with the Giants Community Fund. And I still remember that day. We've worked with hundreds of athletes and had these ceremonies over and over again. But your speech that day was very moving. And you explained to the kids that your gift was more than baseball to the kids. It was about life. Can you expand on that and what that day meant to you and what, looking back to when you were a kid, obviously it definitely moved you. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm a, I'm about to speak this weekend at Humboldt University, and I'm going to tell a lot of the same story that I told there because it's super important. And when it comes to these fields, you look at these fields and you look at what the fields do. And not all these kids, not everybody that gets onto a little league field is going to be a major league baseball player. Obviously, 1%, right? 1% of 1% at little league. Like if you take it all the way back to little league. However, what it allows them to do is dream. And if you can just start dreams, regardless of what it is, giving yourself the ability to dream is super important. And when I was over in Oakland against the A's, I think I can't remember the A's were playing. I was a kid. I was in eighth grade. And my dad just took me and he got me some really good seats. And I got to see some of my favorite players and I was in awe of them. And I told my dad one day I'm going to play there. And he patted me on the head. And he said, go get them, kid. And that was it. I didn't go to any special camps. I didn't, I didn't get any special coaching. I just wanted to dream like that. And I wanted to chase it. And I remember walking in through the center field wall of Oakland. And when I was 22 years old and I had my cell phone, a little Nokia cell phone back then. It was old school back then. But I'm sure a lot of us our age remember that phone. And I called my dad and I said, you know where I'm at? And he said, yeah, you're in Oakland. I said, dad, no, do you understand what this means? And he's like, I'm not following you. I said, dad, I see the seats that we were sitting in when I told you I was going to play here one day. And tonight I pitch, he hung up the phone and I called my mom. I called him back and my mom answered. And I said, what happened? I said, well, your dad's crying. You know, your dad's military. And he doesn't want to hear him cry. And he just cried and he had to stop. And that was it for me. So that to me, is what those baseball fields mean. Everybody deserves a chance to be able to look at their mom or dad or coach or sister or brother or uncle or grandpa or grandma or aunt and say, one day I'm going to be. I don't care what that is, but one day I'm going to be. And when you can stay on a field like that and say, one day I'm going to be a baseball player, go get them. And they're going to dream. And then in a a year, they're going to be, one day I'm going to play for this college. Awesome. Go get them. And then maybe their situation changes, but they're so used to saying one day I'm gonna, one day I'm going to be a lawyer. One day I'm going to firefighter. One day I'm going to be, I'm going to pilot. One day I'm going to be a businessman or, or whatever. But the one day started on that baseball field. That's where it started. And that's why I wanted to have that situation because you just got to get kids to start dreaming. And those are where they happen on fields like that. And to be able to provide a situation or help provide, I should say, I didn't provide all of it, but help provide a situation where kids can go out and do that. That's what it's all about. And as a big leader looking back, it's like, man, I can win all the rings. I can have all the money. And if people don't look at you as someone that tried to like, Hey man, encourage or look up to, or be a role model, you wasted everybody's time, including yourself. Because when the, when it comes to an end, I can guarantee you, I haven't been in the big, I haven't been on a, I've not been on a major league baseball field competing in over six years and the rings are in my vault and I don't wake up every morning, stretch and be like, yeah, world championship today. I'm a world <laughs> champion. 
I'm a, Hey man, I got to get to my kids to school. I got to get to work. I got to get to this brewery. I got men's night. I got to pick up my kids. I'm mentoring my boys. I'm trying to help them mentally. I'm a dad. I'm not living on that. And I'm still trying to get my sons to dream because that's what it's all about in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. And like I mentioned, you know, we, we have the pleasure of working with so many athletes, but one of your causes is so very specific as an active leader to end human trafficking and modern day slavery. So my questions are, how did this come to be and how serious of a problem are we really looking at? Yeah. You know, it came to be, honestly, that time I signed in San Francisco and I didn't want to, I remember I signed and I was reading this article and I just helped my buddy. His name's Mike King. He runs an organization called Youth Front. And we were starting something called Something to Eat. And he called me and said, hey, I want to start this hunger initiative. It's called Something to Eat. And I want to get young kids pay for it. But it's 25 cents a meal. And they got to come in and they got to package the meals. And, you know, it's food packing. You see a lot now. But this started early when I didn't see much of it way back in 2007 or 2008, rather. And I helped him do that. And I was putting water wells in in Africa. I was trying to do some of that stuff and, and do that. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to read on hunger because I'm helping my buddy with his hunger initiative. So I'm reading up on hunger and what the effects are and water and what water, pure water does. Because I was researching that. And all of a sudden, everywhere I would look at poverty, hunger, lack of water, I would always read about slavery. And I'm like, oh man, I don't understand slavery. And I'm at that time, a lot of us back in 2008, I mean, this movement on trafficking that we're hearing now jumped in about the time I jumped in on it. And in your ignorance, you're like, slavery is over in the civil war. I don't understand. This shouldn't even be real. I don't even know like slavery. And you start reading about labor slavery and child slavery, child labor, and then sex trafficking. And you're like, what? And I called my buddy and I'm like, hey, man, Mike, is this real? What are we looking at? He's like, honestly, it is. Jerry. He goes, I just heard this really awesome guy speak in England. I was just over there. His name's Dave Batstone. You should look him up. He does a great job. So I looked him up and he's a professor at University of San Francisco, USF. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I just signed with San Francisco. So I wrote him an email and told him who I was and his whole staff. He thought someone was playing a prank on him because he's like, come on, you know, because he was so ex- he for whatever reason, he had been excited that I signed. I don't know. I wasn't I didn't think I was that big of a name. <laughs> I was super excited. He said, who's playing a prank? And he started an organization called Not For Sale. And so I kind of looked him up, talked to him, met with him for dinner when I was in San Francisco for Fan Fest. And he told me all about what's going on. And I fell in love and I said, I'm going to use my platform any way I can. So he brought me in, sat me down, showed me all this stuff. And man, when you're looking at, you know, a 35, $40 billion business using 30 to 40 million people in the slavery world. And that's probably an under, honestly, that's what you know of. That's not even what you don't know of. So you're looking at that and then seeing how they're using human beings as basically a reusable product. My biggest frustration was that slavery does not allow people to say one day I'm going to be slavery says you're going to be what I tell you to be. And you're only good for what I tell you you're good for. That's not okay. And that's anti-human, it's anti-God, it's anti-life, it's anti-everything. There's nothing positive about that statement. And so for me, I went into it with, I'm going to help any way I can. How can I bring exposure to it? How can I help? 
So we ended up helping an orphanage. I got a bunch of ball players involved in it. We started kind of, I got them exposed what was going on. They all jumped in. We started building sports courts for these orphanages that were rescuing these children out of Thailand. And then the U.S., you start looking to the U.S. and you see that the average, well, at the time was female, but it might be all the way around now, but the average sex slave is 12. So you got to think as a human being, that's disgusting. And we're talking the average age and that's in our own country. I mean, it is so bad, but people think, oh, well, it's, well, we don't live in a poverty area. It doesn't happen just in poverty areas. I mean, you're, it's in a lot of affluential areas, actually. You have, I've caught parents selling their kids. Like, you've caught these people. It's unbelievable what you see and what you hear about. And it is bad. And people tell me, well, are we going to ever end slavery? I don't know. Probably not. And people are like, well, why would you fight for something and then say that? I said, because as long as there's greed... And as long as there's perversion and lust in the world, there's going to be slavery because you're going to use it to either for sex slavery or you're going to use it for labor slave, like either one until we get rid of it, which I don't see that happening. The best thing that I can do is try my best to expose it and save who I can save. Because if you can save some lives, man, you can't just be like, well, it's not able to be done. So I guess everybody's screwed. It's like, no, how about like, Let's save who we can save here and try it because you never know the kind of person you're saving. You never know what that person's going to become, who they're going to become in the world, globally, nationally to help it. And maybe we do end it. But right now, that's not my job. Is to, my, my job as a human being is not to end it. My job is to expose it and help in any way I can. That's what I've been doing. Yeah, it's tremendous. And I know you've also founded the nonprofit Generation Alive. Did that birth come from this cause or tell us about that and that mission. Yeah, it did. You know, originally generation live came out as a situation where I go into schools, talk about dreaming big, talk about surrounding yourself with people that believe in you talk about what it means to be a leader, making good choices. And I was doing all these school assemblies and I was getting into these schools just because I said I was free. Most schools are like, nah, we can't afford it. I'm like, I'm free. And they're like, oh, well, come in and talk to our kids, right? So I came in, I would do these big school assemblies and I'd talk about all this stuff. And then I remember a young lady came up to me in Spokane, Washington, and I do not remember her name. And I, I can't remember exactly which high school. I felt like it was one of the Valley schools in Spokane where I lived. And she said, you know, your message is great. And I said, thank you. She's like, it's not realistic. And I'm like, do tell. And she's like, well... You said surround yourself with people that believe in you, make good choices. And she goes, but I live in like an impoverished area of Spokane and the people that surround me and protect me are gangs, but they protect me. And the choices that I have to make to be able to feed myself and to feed my siblings is I got to go into grocery stores and steal the food because I can't afford it. But I don't know how else I'm supposed to do it. So if I can't afford it and I've got no choice, but the people that are surrounded and protecting me and keeping me alive so that I can continue to feed my family or the gangs that I run with, because they're the only ones that are loyal. What do you want me to do? And I was like, man, I don't even have an answer for you. I was like, that is one of the most thought provoking statements I've ever, I've ever had. I said, but you know what? I think I can think about it. Let me think about it. I said, I can't give you an answer and maybe I can't even give you the input that you're going to need. I'm just going to say, stay alive. 
because that's the best thing you can do right now. And know that you need to think about staying alive so that you can make a positive impact on others, not stay alive and become the gang that's doing the damage. Maybe, yeah, you have to utilize gangs right now to stay alive, but do some positive, try to unite, unify as best you can. So I went back to the drawing board. I scrapped everything. I got a new board. I got a new mission statement. I scrapped everything and said, let's focus on poverty and the pains that poverty causes. And how can we alleviate those pains by act of compassion? Because that's what these kids need is to be able to see compassion that they're believed in and that there is another way. I just don't know what that is. And that's when we started doing the same hunger initiative, something to eat. We've done over 3 million meals, 4 million meals in the last seven, eight years. We package backpacks for girls that are rescued off the street. We go to the CVSs and the hotels and we say, Hey, you got any shampoo that you're not going to use. They'll give you those little bottles. They don't want them. And you give them feminine products, shampoos, stuff. They need clothes, underwear. They love it. When you give them that backpack, they start crying because it's like, these are stuff I, I would have no idea how to get. And if I don't have them here, I have to go back to the streets because I can get it there. So we provide those opportunities. We provide food opportunities. We provide other ways that kids can start thinking about other ways to provide ways to give back to their community. That's how now you're getting kids to dream and dream in a way that says, man, I, I, I just want to have unconditional love. I want to give back to my community. I want to take what's wrong and make it right in any way that I possibly can. And that's what Generation Alive has done. That's what I do here at the brewery even. I implement this in every aspect of my life and in my children and my wife and I are both on board with all of it. It's been great. Yeah, I just love what you just said. With, and I think if people listening, you scrapped everything and just pivoted. And I think every charity, nonprofit out there your mission should be that flexible. We've built 200 basketball courts, baseball fields, all sorts, but now we're pivoting into other areas because there's just other stuff to do. And I think the flexibility of that statement is very powerful. And I think that goes back to, I look at your giving, it's very broad-based. And I'm curious, is that faith-based or where does the motivation come to spread your wings through all sorts of different causes? Yeah, it, a lot of it's faith-based. For me, it's, you know, everybody, when you say faith-based, they say, well, he just gives to the church. That's not true. I do give to my church. However, I'm a community guy because I think the guy that I follow, his name's Jesus. And the guy that I follow is community. And he would go out and he just serve those who needed to be served. He didn't only hang out in the synagogues. He didn't only, he hung out in the streets. He hung with people. He hung with prostitutes. He hung with criminals and beggars and all the, he hung with all of them. And he's like, I don't have a certain place. So for me, it's like, wait a minute, my job as a human being is to my faith-based giving is I have faith and trust in, I see something. And when my heart says, you need to give there. I'm going to figure out a way to do it. And I can't give to everything. I can't give to every cause. I'm not going to be able to do that. But I can, whenever my heart tugs and says, man, I there's a need. Poverty is always going to be a need for me. It damages so many things in so many different ways. You just got to, you can pick a hundred different ways to give back to poverty, right? I just think I look at hunger. I look at water. I look at do unto others as you want done unto you. So if I'm hungry, I want to eat. So when someone's hungry, find a way to give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, I'm thirsty. I want something to drink. There's someone thirsty, give them something to drink. I don't want to walk around naked. 
So when I want clothes, I buy clothes. If you someone needs clothes, figure out a way to get it done. So for me, that's what I've done. And that's how I give back. And I, and I just take the different needs that at the time I feel is important and do the best I can. And I use my influence in every way, any way I can to give back and to provide. And for me, it's just look at your community, look at the needs of your community and figure out how you can help your community first, because that's where you're living and that's where your impact is at the time. Yeah. And to pivot a little bit, I know you have a little bit of fascination with beer and I've attended many of your fundraisers at 21st Amendment in the city. And now you are a brewmaster in Texas. Tell us about that endeavor. Yeah, I'm not a brewmaster, to be honest with you. I own a brewery. <laughs> I said, but, <laughs> but now you mentioned 21st Amendment. I got one of the brewmasters out of there and brought him with me. And then one of the managers from 21st, Brandon Phillips, I brought him with me. So I have Jaron Shepard and Brandon Phillips. And I went to him and I said, hey, I want to start a brewery. I have no idea what I'm doing. But I enjoy what breweries do to a community and I enjoy what people, I did not understand breweries until I moved to San Francisco. So once I understood them and they're not a bar, they're actually a place for community to gather, talk and live. And I loved it. And so that concept was so big for me. I started doing men's nights like in Sacramento, I did this men's night at a brewery. It was so impactful to me. I'm like, I want a brewery just so I can do my own men's nights. And I do them now. I do men's nights every third Thursday. I have a trivia night here on Tuesdays. The community comes out, you do trivia. I have music on Wednesdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. I We have yoga on Sunday you know, at 11 o'clock. Like, I just wanted a spot where I could put on any kind of community thing I want, and then people can have a beer and talk about life. Because for me, when I look around at breweries, you know, I'll sit here in my podcast studio. I'm, I'm looking at you, but just past this camera right here is my window and it looks out into my brewery, right? So I get to see, and when I look around here, I see couples that are not in agreement with each other and they're trying to hash something out over a beer. I see another couple that they're on cloud nine with each other and they're celebrating something over a beer or a glass of wine. And then I've got a group of eight people that are just like, hey, man, we're just friends getting together for an evening, talking about life could be good, could be bad. I mean, you got every type of life here that are riding waves, but it is a spot where people can say whether you're charging at a storm or you're living in the sun, it's a place for community to come and talk and hang and live life and make plans. I got people over here on computers, with their headphones in doing business deals. This is awesome. This is what community is all about. It's not sitting behind your door in your house or behind a fence where no one can see you. It's being together and living and thriving. And so breweries for me are, are super important. So when I knew I want to start one, I kind of went the Yankees approach. I did not do a rebuilding phase. I said, I need the best this and the best that. <laughs> And I, I'm coming in and we're doing some damage right away. And we did. And the impact's been great. We're already up for one of the top breweries in San Antonio. Best place to have a beer. Our beers, you know, we put some beer in for some awards. Like, it's been so fun just getting to know the community through this. I'm so thankful I did it. It's been great. And you mentioned you're in your podcast studio. So welcome to the podcast world. Your podcast is entitled Built for the Storm Podcast. And you've had... Some of our friends and partners already as guests, Kerry Walsh Jennings and Buster Posey. What is your message for the, your pod? Yeah, it's built for the, it's that exact thing. You're built for a storm. I think, you know, going through storms and going through life, you know, Buffalo. So my, obviously my, I have a hop head for a logo, right? But the head is a Buffalo. 
and everything's Buffalo. I have a Buffalo wall. My wife used to own a herd of Buffalo. She's got a Buffalo head in her store across the street. We love Buffalo. The reason we love Buffalo is because they're one of the few animals that take a storm and charge right at it and they don't run from them. And that's kind of the whole concept of this whole brewery and my podcast. And I talk about, I'll bring affluential people. I'll bring different people of success on. And I don't even want to talk about your successes. I want to talk about your failures. I want to talk about the storms that you ran or you had to charge into to get through life. And how did it shape you? Because we're not shaped by the sunny days of our life. We're not. Anytime we have a sunny day, by all means, ride that wave as long as you can and just relax. But the storms are going to happen and you're going to have years of it. You might have months of it. You might have a week or a day of it, but storms are, are going to happen, but you got to take them head on. And if you run from them, you die. Cows do that, right? Cows run from storms. They end up get scattered. They die. They get lost. They get attacked by predators where Buffalo, when the storms come, they herd up, they put their head down and they push right through the snow and the rain because they know that the clouds pass over them when they go at it and they get out of it. They don't hang out in it. And so that's what Built for the Storm is all about. And it is talking about, hey, what storm shaped you or what did you do that makes you successful? And how do you utilize those skills to navigate storms, whether in business or in life, to get out of them appropriately with the least amount of damage done? Because we know storms do a lot of damage. And it was birthed from, I lost a marriage of 22 years, about three and a half years ago. And it was sad. It was scary for me. I was, it was terrible. I didn't want anything to do with that. I'm a family guy. And I had to deal with the storm that I didn't bring that upon me. Sometimes storms are coming that you didn't even bring upon you, right? It just happened. And I just remember how I was protecting my sons and how I took it head on. I did not run from it. I learned to be a better father because of it. So I'm thankful for that. And I actually am a better husband to my new wife of almost six months. I got married in November and I'm very thankful for the storm. Sometimes we got to thank the storms for what they do to us and help they shape us and make us better. And that's what that podcast is about. And I've had some great conversations. It's been phenomenal. That's great. Well, we'll put in our show notes, all the different ways that people can follow you on your podcast, follow your brewery. I want to thank you for jumping in 10 years ago and making that contribution so we could build that Junior Giants field and all the stuff you've done over the years, especially here in the Bay Area. So, Jeremy, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Heck yeah, man. Thanks for having me. We hope you've enjoyed another episode of the Good Tidings podcast, hosted by Good Tidings Foundation founder, Larry Harper. For more information on all the good we're doing, go to goodtidings.org.